Well, this morning we're going to be looking at Psalm 129. Uh, We're continuing the Psalms of Ascent for a few more weeks, about five more weeks through Psalm 134. Uh, The Psalm that we look at this week reminded me a little bit of a Psalm we did a few weeks ago in that it is intended to be read as a kind of corporate song, a participatory Psalm. And you notice it because like that previous Psalm in the Psalms of Ascent, uh, it repeats its first line. So much like uh, we talked about before, probably it would have been a worship leader of some sort in front of a gathered group of Israelites would have quoted the first line of this Psalm. And because they're all such good students of the scripture like you are, they would have said, oh yes, I know that first line. That's Psalm 129. And so the worship leader would have said, let all of Israel say, and all of them would have joined in together in quoting the rest of the psalm as an act of worship, a sort of participation in this worship service. So uh, Psalm 129, it's important for the context too, as we'll talk about in a minute. But again, this is a a corporate psalm that would have been uh, sung or would have been stated together. I'm going to read it to you, Psalm 129, verse 1. Greatly have they afflicted me from my youth. And then the break... Let Israel now say, Greatly have they afflicted me from my youth, yet they have not prevailed against me. The plowers plowed upon my back, they made long their furrows. The Lord is righteous, he has cut the cords of the wicked. May all who hate Zion be put to shame and turned backward. Let them be like the grass on the housetops which withers before it grows up with which the reaper does not fill his hand, nor the binder of sheaves his arms. Nor do those who pass by say, the blessing of the Lord be upon you. We bless you in the name of the Lord. Psalm 129. Uh, Well, it's pretty obvious from those images that Psalm 129 draws that this is a psalm primarily about the experience of pain, suffering, and persecution. But remember, as I said, this is a corporate song, which makes it really interesting. Um, It's not a psalm primarily about me as an individual facing some hardship in my life. Psalm 129 is about a group of people coming together and recognizing the way in which the world is so often hostile to God's people. It's a recognition by all of God's people that across so much of time and space and distance, God's people know what it is to face suffering. It has apparently been that way for a long time, all the way back as these psalms are reflecting on this seems to be the way that it so often is. The world is not interested in God's rule, and have long sought in their rebellion against God, the Creator, to also make trouble for those who do otherwise and attempt to declare his lordship, his sovereignty. Um, It's not just Psalm 129 in this corporate moment of worship in which Israel would have come together to remind themselves of the reality of suffering and faithfulness to God. Uh, You go through the scriptures and you find this attested to time and time again. So take the prophet Isaiah's words from that famous chapter 53 where he's talking about the Lord's anointed. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrow and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. Or you imagine uh, lines like the Apostle Paul when he wrote to the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians describing his own ministry. Uh, Imagine this. This is his resume of having been an apostle. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and day I was adrift at sea. 
on frequent journeys in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and hardship through many sleepless nights, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure, and apart from other things, there is the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all of the churches. Uh, the Apostle Paul's experience of being in ministry. <laughs> Jesus also testifies to this fact that so often those who are faithful to God experience not always bliss and happiness and fulfillment, but the reality of suffering. You might remember the first days of Jesus' life were spent fleeing, fleeing to Egypt to escape the genocide of King Herod, bent to put an end to his life. Jesus' ministry was kicked off, not with a party or a celebration, but instead with 40 days of temptation, fasting in the wilderness. And of course, his life ended with those agonize, that agonizing night in the garden, his arrest, his death, and his humiliation. I don't know if you realize it or not, but when you participate in this religion of Christianity, you align yourself with a long history, a central place, where the experience of rejection and persecution and hardship are constantly on the minds and in the prayers of those who follow God. From the Psalms, to the prophets, to the apostles, to the early church, almost no one escapes the reality of faithfulness to God experienced in the hardship and the trials and the difficulties of that, faith, that faithfulness. Even now, the church can join together, even for those of us who might not find ourselves in a moment of hardship, who might not say, like Psalm 129, we know what it is to have this plow drug across our back. We can still come together like this psalm was done and collectively say, as a church, we suffer. Because even now, we have brothers and sisters in Christ who suffer this very day. Churches who worship quietly in fear of being discovered. Laws passed to stop to keep them from speaking or witnessing or bearing truth. Adherents to Christian worship who are punished with prison and death for their faith. There's never been a time where the church could not come together and say, the church suffers. Somewhere, someplace, God's people are suffering for the sake of faithfulness. And the psalmist recognizes this from the first verse. Greatly have they afflicted me from my youth. But the psalm also interjects a second point to that. The reality of suffering, but also equal to that realization of suffering, is the second half of that verse. Yet, they have not prevailed against me. The psalm holds these two tensions, these two realities together. Long has God's people been made to suffer, but never have God's people been prevailed against by this suffering. Though they've tried, the world has not been able to stomp out the church, to stomp out what God is doing. God is still preached. He is still worshipped. He is still witnessed to, sometimes in the most miraculous and powerful ways, at the very heart of where that opposition is strongest. That's what Psalm 129 is about, this sort of reconciliation between these two experiences, the unstoppable movement of God in creation and the constant suffering and persecution of those who join him. The reality of suffering and the miracle of our perseverance through it. How can those two things coexist? How can, like the New Testament writers so often do, call us to take joy in trials of various kind, to embrace suffering and at the same time sense in it a kind of triumphant victory? How can the world put all of its weight and its power against the church and yet the church 
continues to grow, sometimes most profoundly when it is most opposed. That's what I want to look at in Psalm 129. And I can't help but recognize how remarkable these images of suffering are that this psalm paints. Remember, the psalms are primarily uh, poetic writing. They're drawing using, as we've seen so many times, analogies or illusions or images to try to make something real. And I found the ones in Psalm 129 to be particularly profound. The suffering here is described as a plowman driving his team of probably oxen across the psalmist's back, cutting deep ruts into his flesh. If you've ever seen a field plowed or if you've ever mowed a yard, you know what this is. To go back and forth, taking pass after pass, the psalmist imagines the flesh being ripped by this plow driven across his back. Like lashes, the world takes its payment in flesh and blood. It's a kind of systematic and cruel and constant work that it does against God's people. But then the psalmist says, in reality of this image... Uh, The ESV doesn't do a great job with translate. Some translations do a little bit better with this because it seems disconnected. But that next verse says that God has cut the cords or the ropes. Specifically what it's talking about is it's talking about those reins in which the plowman would have used to guide those ox who are cutting those rows across his back. What the psalmist is saying is though this work continues, the cutting of the flesh of my back, what God has done is snapped the lines, the control mechanism, the steering wheel, if you will, for that plowman. The image is of now a plowman, no longer able to guide his team of oxen and suddenly finding himself no longer in control and having lost direction over this persecution. The second image is of grass, grass that is trying to grow on a housetop, a roof. Um, the idea here is, and you see this if uh, uh, if you uh, read uh, what's Laurie Ingle Wilder, so the, the, the sod houses that they would build. Uh, oftentimes in Israel, what would happen is they would have stone homes, but the roofs would be made with sod or covered with sod. And so they would take this cut of ground, a thin slice off the top of the ground, and position it on the roof. And the psalmist says that when they do that, there is grass that's in that dirt that's on the roof. But quickly, as it bakes on the roof, that grass withers and it dies. What's being described then is this grass, the potential of that life, all of a sudden uprooted, burnt up, no longer capable of being harvested or used. With this grass now being quickly gone, withered and dried, there's no person who would come along to harvest it. There's no man who would come and reap the grass off the top of a house like you might a field because it no longer has use. It's burned up. This final image is actually an allusion to probably what was a saying during harvest times. We find a really similar statement to the last verse in the story of Ruth, when Boaz is coming along and they're reaping grain in the fields, and they would offer this blessing for those who are harvesting. And the psalmist imagines nobody's going around and blessing the harvest of the dead grass on the housetop because it has no value, no purpose. It's wasted, it's quickly green and quickly gone just as soon. So to the psalmist, he imagines this is how it is with the power of the world, the pure persecution of the world. It is there one moment, but the next moment it is gone, withered away, dead. No one goes around claiming victory or harvest or success because it can't. They have their plows, they take their root, but not for very long because eventually the persecution loses control. It's burnt up, it's quickly forgotten, and what remains are God's people. Um, At the center of this psalm in these images is a really short but important line, verse 4. The Lord is righteous. 
It's only three words in Hebrew, but it sticks out as something unique in the midst of these sort of poetic images that are being drawn on either side of it. The Lord is righteous, a simple fact inserted into these experiences of suffering and persecution. Um, We spent quite a bit of time, it seems like a really long time ago when we were in the book of Romans, Uh, but when we were working our way through Romans, I spent one whole week and mentioned it several other times talking about the idea of what righteousness means. What does it mean in the Old Testament when God is declared to be righteous? To us, righteous sounds like a kind of abstract legal term. Righteous sounds like you have a sort of disposition for high standards, that you always are in the right because you've done the right thing. And there's a bit of that in this word of righteousness. Um, But it doesn't make sense in some ways to to put that definition in the middle of this psalm. I mean, think about it. So what exactly is it supposed to mean? God, here we are suffering. Here we are being worn out. Here we are being beaten down by the world. Our backs being ripped open by this persecution. But God is legally always in the right. (laughs) It sort of doesn't hit with the impact you would expect, right? There's going to be something more going on in this declaration of God's righteousness in the midst of our suffering than while we suffer, God, we look to you and say, well, at least you're legally right. Uh, There is more to this. In the Old Testament, if you remember how we talked about righteousness, righteousness has this idea of covenant faithfulness, that God is legally in the right because he has fulfilled the covenant, the legally binding agreement that he made with his people, all the way back to Abraham and on through the fathers to his people in the wilderness at Mount Sinai, that God promised to protect and to guide and to make his nation great. And his righteousness, his legal standing, if you will, is his covenant loyalty, his faithfulness, his willingness to stand by those promises he's given his people. God is righteous because he's faithful to bless his people and to walk with his people. And all of a sudden that starts meaning something a little bit more in the midst of this psalm. Put yourself in the position of this psalmist, persecuted and suffering, the world, all of its pressure driven across our backs, beaten down. But we remind ourselves, like verse four, that God is righteous. God is loyal and faithful to the promise and the covenant that he's made. That the final word of my realization in this world, my experience in this world, is not what I feel, not what I suffer, but what God will do and what God will make of it. What Psalm 129 does is accept that pain and suffering are a real experience in this life. We know them. Our brothers and sisters before us knew it. All of human experience has testified to it. Even those who follow God do not find themselves on day one of salvation, having knelt at an altar, suddenly lifted on a cloud and raised above it so that every day is happy and peaceful. We suffer. It's at the center of this human experience. The world can be cruel and hard. But in the middle of it is this fact. God is faithful to his people. We are not abandoned in the middle of this suffering. Eventually, one way or another, God will sever the controls of that plowman. He will dry up and wither away that grass. So how is God faithful to his people in the midst of this suffering? I don't think the psalmist probably could have anticipated what it meant that Israel would one day be victorious over their enemies. 
what most of the Jews were expecting, the way in which God would show his ultimate loyalty, his ultimate faithfulness to his people, is that they would somehow rise up against this persecution and overcome it, that they would drive out the oppressors, that they would take back control of their temple and their land, and that God would rule over his people in peace and prosperity with all of that persecution pushed out, out of the margins. There's truth to that expectation. I mean, after all, if you read the uh, book of Revelation, much of what they anticipated was to come. But the greatest moment of God's faithfulness, the realization, the revelation that God was righteous to his people came in a way that I don't think many of them, the psalmist included, probably could have imagined. A few moments ago, I quoted from that famous Isaiah 53, uh, that the God's anointed would be rejected and despised in this world. That the whole chapter is about the reality of suffering, and the servant of God who comes will share in that suffering. And those of you who know the chapter well know that it says something really remarkable about God's anointed coming. It says this, surely he has bore our griefs, and he has carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. All we, like sheep, have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. I was struck by how similar that image is from Isaiah 53 as these plowed marks across the back of Psalm 129. By his stripes, we are healed. It's the same image. The back being ripped open, these stripes across him. But here in Isaiah chapter 53, it's not just the human experience we get beaten. It's that God's anointed God himself would come down and not only bear those stripes that Psalm 129 attests to, but that he would do it so that we might receive a message, a future of healing. We not only have a promise that God will deliver us, that if you stick it out, if you deal with the persecution long enough, eventually it's going to pay off, eventually Jesus is going to come back, eventually you're going to make it to heaven, eventually everything will work out and be better off for you. What we have as believers is a testimony, a witness to God not waiting to someday deal with this problem, but coming himself into the midst of it and taking on this suffering. His back was torn by the world. He too was crushed by its persecution. And in the midst of it, he bore our sins And he suffered for our iniquities while we had gone astray, looking for our own way out of it, trying to find our own solution. God was laying on him the iniquity of us all. And as Isaiah 153 put it, so that his chastisement, his experience of this suffering might bring us peace. The New Testament writers would eventually see what Jesus had undergone through crucifixion and recognize all of the ways in which it fulfilled passages like Isaiah 53 and I think passages like Psalm 129, that though we suffer, God is righteous. What does God's righteousness mean? It doesn't just mean that God will vindicate us. It means that the creator of the universe, the one who made everything that exists, every life in it, would allow himself to come down into that creation and to suffer under the hands of the very ones that he had created and that he would bear it for us. 
that he would share in this broken human experience so that by his participation in it, we might have peace. Peter put it this way in one of his letters. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. Here's this image again, that by his faithfulness, we might find a new kind of faithfulness ourselves. For it is by his wounds that we have been healed. And then Peter would go on to write in the letter, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trials when it comes upon you to test you. Like the psalm has promised, don't be surprised when you find this world hard, when you find yourself rejected, when you find yourself suffering in sickness or in persecution or in want, as though something strange were happening to you, Peter writes, as if somehow you were supposed to escape this because you had followed Christ. Verse 13, but rejoice insofar as you share Christ's suffering, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. What the New Testament writers picked up on is if Christ was willing to come and share in our suffering, our persecution, then by our faith in him, we would share in his vindication, in his resurrection, in his life. The church really has no concept of this in many places today, that it is actually something of value to suffer Because it creates within you an identification with the suffering of Christ. The Christians before us have actually looked on their suffering as a positive thing. Because by enduring it, they more deeply identified with their Savior. And this is what Psalm 129 does. It calls a group of people together. Some of them who were probably doing just fine, thank you very much had good harvests and had money in the bank accounts and family was happy and growing. And yet they came together and they sang Psalm 129. We suffer. It's a reality of life. They embrace it. This way of suffering is not a momentary inconvenience that some unlucky Christians just stumble into, but instead they recognize this is what it is to be God's people and to be participants in what Christ is doing, that to take up my cross to deny myself, to face suffering with my own faithfulness, is to share in the way in which my Lord and my Savior has given his life for me. And that so by doing it, there's a kind of joy to be like the one who has saved me, to share in what he has given for me, knowing full well that what is to come is an even deeper sharing, not just in his suffering, but in his life and in his hope and in his peace. By his stripes, we are healed. If you want to know the real power of what it means that Jesus was resurrected and vindicated by God, ascended to his right hand, the real way of understanding Jesus' resurrection is not just a kind of mental ascribing to it. I believe in an actual physical, literal resurrection. That's important. But the way to really understand what Jesus' resurrection means is to share in his suffering to be willing to walk the path that he walked, knowing and believing that by that suffering an even greater resurrection is coming, that it's real and that it's yours by the fact that you are his, to take up your cross, to follow him, to live the way that he did. I wonder what following Jesus does cost you. This was Jesus' point to his disciples. Don't be surprised when it costs you something. Don't shy away from it when it does. I wonder what sort of suffering some of you have shared. Some of you, I know, it is real and tangible, and you can point to times in your life. For others of us, those days may still be around the corner. 
but daily we live with a willingness to do it. We come to Psalms like Psalm 129 and say, this is the song of God's people. The experience of suffering, the embracing of that suffering. Um, Imagine how it would go over if we had suffering worship songs and we invited you to come in and say, let's together sing about suffering, (laughs) right? We don't do it, but we share in it. We're willing to do it. Because in the middle of that suffering is that declaration, God is righteous. He is faithful. And when we suffer with him, we participate in his death and in his life. So we're going to close in prayer this morning, and my prayer is this. Um, For some of us, that suffering is real. You know what it is right now. Um, But for all of us, we don't escape the reality of this willingness to bear what Christ would call us into for his sake. So we bow our heads this morning and we say to him, God, wherever you would lead us, whatever you would call us into, the glory and the resurrection and the power on the other side makes all suffering a joy in this life to share in the life you have that's to come. And by the Spirit's help, we mean it. We do it. We live it by his grace. Let's pray this morning. Heavenly Father, we realize how rare it is for a group of people to come together and celebrate suffering. So much of our lives and our days and our time and our money and our interests are try to alleviate it. And rightfully so. We don't suffer just because we think it makes us better or makes us tougher or makes us stronger Christians. But God, we recognize the reality of suffering because it has always existed for your people. But in the midst of it, we also recognize that it's by your faithfulness in the midst of this suffering that we realize who you really are. God, we're amazed this morning to reflect on the fact that you chose to reveal yourself to us as a suffering servant. That the greatest news and truth of who you are, of your love and your faithfulness and your grace was expressed in your willingness to come down to bear this brokenness, to bear our transgressions, to place yourself under these stripes of this world, and to ultimately die in our place. Seeing you do it, God, reflecting on it this morning, God, I'm humbled and I feel challenged at the ways I try to avoid it. You told us, God, to follow you would mean to bear a cross. Lord, we do it because we're willing to share in your way and in your path. God, forgive us of all of the expectations of thinking that because we're Christians, everything should work out good and everything should be easy and everything should pay off for us. Instead, God, I pray that we would fix our eyes on you and on the path you have before us. And though it might mean suffering or difficulty or pain, God, we hold on to the resurrection and the future we have in you. And as so many brothers and sisters before us have done, God, we face trials and suffering and we count it as joy because it means that we are yours and we are your people and we are like you. And we know that so much more lies ahead. So God, by your spirit, let it be true. Work it into our hearts. Make us people who are so fixed on you and on the hope that we have in you. That God, the suffering of this world would be like this psalm describes. As difficult as it is, the line's broken. And as present a reality as it is, how quickly it weathers and dries up and dies away. 
And what's left is faithfulness. Your faithfulness, your covenant loyalty, your righteousness to us. And God, having pressed through this suffering, a demonstration of our faith and our hope and our faithfulness to you by the Spirit's power, by the power of your gospel, let it be true in how we live in this world. It's in your name we pray. Amen.